Caution. There is a rude word in the opening salvo of this podcast, and again a couple of times at the end. Four letters beginning with an S. So it's not the rudest, but still not what you want over breakfast, or if your kids are about. Now, I try not to swear on these as much as possible, but I think a bleep or a milder word would reduce the impact of the story being told on this occasion, so I have let it stand. So, you know, I wouldn't do it gratuitously, and you have been warned, you bunch of... Welcome to Indefinable Magic. Confessions and cathartic ancient grievance venting about a long-running TV show for kids that isn't really for kids, but it is. Written and presented by me, Toby Haydock. This episode, your name will also not go on the list. There's an old actor's joke. Two thesps decide to save a bit of cash on their return to London from a rep season. They hitch a ride on a barge delivering horse muck in order to save their train fare. As the barge chugs along the waterway, a passerby calls out to the bargeman. What you carrying today, Joe? He asks. A load of horse shit and a couple of actors, comes the reply. One of the actors turns to the other and mutters, Well, I don't like the billing. Billing, you see, is very important to actors. These days, with credits whizzing by so fast at the end, the series stars have their names flashing up at the beginning of Doctor Who, before the title even of the show itself. It's recompense for days spent in Cardiff learning technobabble, and for never being able to walk the streets again without someone, at some point, clobbering you with, Hey, aren't you... Weren't you, didn't you used to be, in Doctor Who? It's odd though, isn't it? The programme immediately pointing out its own artifice with those names. Those people you're watching, it's saying. Those people, they're just pretending to be them, it says. So don't get too excited or moved, it's it's all just pretend. And yet, since time immemorial, actors have had their names above the titles in programmes, on posters, in neon. Now, It would be churlish to wonder why a profession based on pretending to be other people and feeding off the positivity of total strangers, often on a nightly basis, requires the desire for acknowledgement. But let's just say that, considering there's no pension, no holiday pay, no sick cover and zero job security, your name, if not in lights, then in Futura Book Extra Bold and travelling legibly across the screen, isn't too much to ask. Of course, we Doctor Who viewers are used to the old way of doing TV credits. Legible, often just one name on the screen at a time in slide captions. But even in the early days, when on a roller, they moved up the screen at a leisurely pace because people in the old days harboured this quaint idea that if you put words on the screen, doing so in a fashion that makes them legible to the audience is probably the best way to go about it. It's one of those many lost arts like basket weaving, calligraphy and holding dishonest politicians to account. So we could check who played our favourite character, 
or if that bloke who was the stroppy captain in the Reboss operation really was the bloke who was that stroppy commander in Planet of Evil and really was also that stroppy crew member in Planet of the Daleks. Reader, he was. Credits on screen gave the actors a bit of visibility. It advertised their work, something very important in a business it is so easy to be overlooked in. So as a kid, I liked seeing people's names in the credits. It meant people knew who they were. In a big world with a massive history, the idea that someone might know who you are is, well, it's comforting. We are all the centre of our own universe, and so it is easy to feel rather lost and alone. The universe, after all, is a big place, and just because you're in the middle of something, it doesn't mean anyone can see you. Which of us has ever looked at the Earth's core? But we've all seen the sky. That's where the stars are. And when I was young, I certainly had the feeling of being a bit anonymous. So I poured myself into Doctor Who books and lists and toys, and I could maybe see myself in there a little too, or at least something I aspired to be, in the Doctor. Someone brave and capable, even though others saw him as an oddball and a misfit. Actually, give me back invisibility, sticking out, well, that's even worse. And it's all perspective, of course. I have since met many very successful actors who would give anything to be anonymous. But it seemed to me, as a youngster, that having your name written down meant something. It meant that I knew who you were for starters. Or did it? One of the first things I learned, after I'd learned the names of everyone who had written and directed episodes of Doctor Who, was that the name on the page wasn't necessarily the whole story. Some people, unhappy with how their scripts had turned out, had asked their episodes to go out under a pseudonym, for example. So the prolific David Agnew, writer of The Invasion of Time and City of Death, didn't actually exist. He wasn't a person. He was a nom de plume to disguise the fact that a lot of the work had been done in-house. Rather than any suggestion of jobs for the boys, the BBC preferred to create a fictional penman. Oh, and it's entirely coincidental, by the way, that the two times this happened on Doctor Who, the original writers, whose work was morphed beyond recognition to necessitate that moniker manipulation, were both called David, Weir and Fisher, respectively. Agnew had also covered for others on shows like Target and The Troubleshooters, and it's fair to say that he and director Alan Smithy have never been seen in the same room together. For the uninitiated, the prolific helmsman Smithy is the Hollywood director equivalent of David Agnew, a catch-all name to replace an unhappy contributor. Agnew hasn't been the only pretend name seen on Doctor Who arising from an acrimonious or unsuccessful writing process. Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln, unhappy with the way the Dominators was going, submitted themselves with each of their father-in-law's Christian names, Norman and Ashby. And so it was Norman Ashby whose sole contribution to the Hooniverse is a five-episode Patrick Troughton story that not many people like that much. Still, it's good to see that they put up a fight, which is kind of what their story is all about. Pseudonym accepted. Uh, the script editor with whom they clashed, by the way, Derek Sherwin, had to then add an extra episode to the following story. But due to this being somewhat frowned upon, episode one of The Mind Robber, written by Sherwin, becomes the only Doctor Who episode in the show's history 
to have no writer credit at all. Barry Letts and Robert Sloman did the pseudonym thing, the same trick as Hazeman and Lincoln, when they wrote The Demons, although the circumstances were much happier, if a producer going against company policy and writing a script with his mate can be seen as happier, which, I suppose, for them, it probably can. And so Guy Leopold is a family name for both contributors. Barry Letts's middle name was Leopold, Robert Sloman's son is Guy. Later, though, when Letts wrote The Time Monster with Sloman and The Green Death and Planet of Spiders, he gave sole credit to his friend because, well, whilst they might help in the short term, actually, ultimately, pseudonyms often raise more questions than they solve. If you crave anonymity, drawing attention to it is not a good idea. It's like having a flag above your bunker saying, this is where I'm hiding, come and have a look. And so... Hiding in plain sight in a similar fashion were Lewis Griefer, who didn't contribute enough to Pyramids of Mars to warrant his credit, and Terence Dix, who objected to some of the changes made to the brain of Morbius. They became, respectively, Stephen Harris and Robin Bland. Robin Bland is a joke on behalf of script editor Robert Holmes, a good-natured riposte to Dix's suggestion that the story go out under some bland pseudonym. Dix, as cheerful as they come, later used Bland Robin as the main chunk of his email address in later years, and that would surely have cemented his place in heaven had he not already done more than enough to get there. Stephen Gallagher, writer of Warrior's Gate and Terminus, has a unique relationship with crediting authorship in the Hooniverse. He wrote the scripts for his TV stories under his own name, but when he came to novelise them for the target range of books, they went out as the work of one John Lidecker, but Lidecker is Gallagher. Same guy, different medium, different name. OK, then. Unlike writers, directors tended not to go for pseudonyms and were often credited, like Douglas Camfield on Inferno and Alan Bromley on Nightmare of Eden, even after they had left the project. Camfield through ill health, Bromley through ill-tempered Tom Baker. Rex Tucker, however removed his name from episode four of The Gunfighters, unhappy with the way it had panned out and the tinkering it had endured. Well, either that or he had a glimpse into the future in which the story was unjustly consigned by early fan historians to the status of only bad Doctor Who story ever and thought he'd get out whilst the going was good. Or bad. Or ugly. This sort of stuff was fascinating to dive into as a youngster, and I started to discover that there was more to this name-on-the-TV-screen stuff than met the eye. But boy, I like those names. Life must be good if you have your name on things. It's proof that you exist. That said, I was sad about my dad leaving, and no one seemed to notice that I was sad, and I wished someone would because I didn't have the courage to say that I was. So maybe I was looking at someone to notice me, to give my feelings credit. My dad had left home unexpectedly when I was four, and so I spent a lot of my childhood hoping for some sort of attention from him or affirmation from my mum, who struggled to bring up four kids on her own and didn't often have the time for the dispensation of niceties or ego boosts. But dad didn't hate us or anything, so a letter would be nice once in a while, or maybe a phone call. An acknowledgement? Was I OK, hun? Oh, I don't know that I was, but... When I watched TV or went to plays, a prominent credit or a name in a programme or star billing on a poster certainly made people seem important. 
I was a little lost, and I liked reading those names. I saw those names as some kind of affirmation of the person. You must be important if people go to the trouble of putting you on a list for all to see, and that must make you feel good, especially if your name is in big letters above the title, or at least not below the horse mug. And it wasn't just about the acknowledgement of a person. It could actually be an important part of the production process. For example, producer John Nathan Turner made sure that Matthew Waterhouse appeared as a vision in episode two of Time Flight, not so much for the story, but so that his name would appear in the cast list in the Radio Times, which would be out advertising next week's shows before the broadcast of Earthshock Part 4. Eagle-eyed fans would have perused the future Adrickless issue and realised that something was up had Adric's name not appeared in the Time Flight Dramatis Personae. Shock death, no longer a shock. Earth spoiler. This seems normal in these days of leaked stories and non-disclosure agreements and press embargoes, but they've been doing this stuff a long time, and Nathan Turner, divisive though he may have been, was a canny operator in many ways. And because of the early release of the Radio Times, actors used pseudonyms within its pages too, in order that surprise appearances be preserved, or at least disguised. I needed a little nudge from a friend to point out to me that the new actor listed in the Radio Times as the Emperor Dalek in episode 3 of Remembrance of the Daleks, Roy Tremelli, might actually be a jumbled-up version of a more familiar performer. Oh yeah, Terry Malloy. James Stoker, listed as Chagil Estran in The King's Demons, is a canny soubriquet. Rather than being yet another jumbling of an actor's name, it is instead a brain teaser, consisting of the jumbled letters of Master's Joke. I defy anyone to have got that at the time. And it was there to successfully disguise the fact that Sir Gilles was indeed the master, although Estram is an anagram for master. I don't defy people to have got that. But it's a fact that otherwise remains successfully hidden until the very moment that he appears on screen and starts saying things. To be fair, though, Antony Ainley's disguise as Neil Toyne, a.k.a. the Portrieve in Castrovalva, is more successful, and surely no one could have guessed that Leon Naitai as Khalid was the renegade Time Lord in a mask because, well, it made no sense then and still doesn't now and is wrong on an awful number of levels. But yeah, still, when I was there and watching as a kid, you got me. I just don't quite know why. Presumably, James Stoker was hired because Neil and Leon had exhausted all usable forms of Ainley's name, but that didn't stop me from looking for it. So if, I don't know, Planet of Fire's preview had promised the hitherto unknown thesp Noel Nathan Yee as the Stranger, or even better, as Mr Maestro, don't you see, Turlo, Maestro is Spanish and or Italian for master, then Columbo Haydock would have solved the mystery before you could say, so is that Lanzarote or San, or is it both? Because all of those Ainley pseudonyms had primed me to be on the lookout, and so when the young German actor whose work I didn't know, Metin Yenal, was listed as appearing in Silver Nemesis, I desperately tried to wrangle it into the bearded blackguard's name without success. Oh, so close. Me, Enti Ainley? Met, Ainley? Oh, what is it? It must be something. 
I was so convinced I was nearly there until the opening seconds of Silver Nemesis unfolded and the tall, thin, Germanic Metignanal strode in as Carl and showed that the BBC makeup department had got considerably better at makeup and only at accents since the King's Demons, or I'd been barking up the wrong tree. In keeping with this masterly mystery, when Mark Gatiss played the character for Big Finish, the anagrammatical Sam Kiskart was deemed to be a more apposite epithet in order to preserve the surprise. The non-existent thesp even gave a few quotes to Doctor Who magazine to sustain the fairly thin disguise. All part of the fun, though. But Gatiss uniquely appears in both TV and audio adventures under both his own name and a pseudonym. For the Rondo Haxton, playing Gantok, in The Wedding of River Song is Gatiss in disguise, not only facially, but in the credits too. Not to preserve any plot spoilers this time, but more, it seems, for a laugh. And as a nod to acromegalic American character actor of the 1930s and 40s, Rondo Hatton. But you know, if you're famous, it's all well and good hiding your name. You can afford to do it. But when you're not, a little precious acknowledgement might be all that you ask for. So all this left me feeling a bit conscious when, if a situation arose where my name could be written down, it got left out. And because I was conscious of it, it always seemed to happen. I mean, a lot. I did my French GCSE a couple of years early, myself and a fellow pupil, Catherine, who was beautiful and confident and everyone seemed very impressed by her because she was smart. It seemed to me that nobody was quite so impressed by me, even though we were both actually doing the GCSE early. But that's probably because she didn't spend her weekends at Birmingham Library looking through old copies of the Radio Times for Doctor Who listings. Anyway, when the local paper listed the GCSE results for the school that year after we'd both passed with an A, everyone was listed with their name and their number of past exams. John Smith, say, 9, Tom Jones, 6, and of course, Catherine Mount, 1. Open brackets, third year pupil, close brackets. Now... Those brackets there were to explain why someone so well brought up and smart and attractive would only have one GCSE pass, because she'd done it early, as a third-year pupil. Uh, people as ancient as me did GCSEs in something called the fifth-year children. Come to my name, though, Toby Haydoke. One. That was it. One. No qualification. No third-year pupil for me. So Catherine looked all clever and advanced, and I looked like the only person that year who'd only managed to pass one solitary GCSE. And that, to me, summed up how my life was. I would always go unnoticed, and even in a moment of triumph. My glass was half empty, and when it was half full, it was of a drink that made you invisible. Now, I'd like to say the effects of that oversight didn't last, but the rancour clearly lingered, as I mentioned it in my groom's speech when Catherine and I got married 20 years later. I hadn't planned to, but it seemed like a cathartic move to say it out loud, and it was greeted by baffled stares from everyone, because I was the only person who'd remembered it, or cared. A lesson, I think, in letting go. Funnily enough, my ire at the newspaper lasted longer than the marriage, an indication that perhaps I sometimes have my eye on the wrong thing, languishing on perceived past injustices rather than enjoying and celebrating the gifts of the present. But, I don't know, I've always been conscious of being left out. It's a failing, but even now, 
I know it's a flaw. I know no one bar me remembers that bloody newspaper list, let alone what GCSEs anybody anywhere got. But it lingers. Often in Doctor Who magazine, when they were listing the DVD commentary lineups, I should have just been pleased I was doing the DVD commentaries. But if I was moderating, that fact got left out on the listings in DWM. But if Mark Ayres or Clayton Hickman were, they always seemed to get listed. Now, look, I've not looked back since, and I know I wasn't always left out, and those other guys weren't always mentioned, but that's how it felt to me because, as I say, my glass is always half empty, and even on the rare occasions it was full, it'd be one of those personalised beer glasses, you know, Toby's pint, but some joker would have scraped my name off it, or even worse, spelt it Tony. But let's not get started on that. Actually... Let's. As someone whose name is often spelt wrong, both first and sir, then I feel kinship with those to whom it has happened on Doctor Who. It is said that Kit Pedler, an eminent scientist as well as Doctor Who ideas man, once built a nuclear bomb in his shed. Just to prove that he could, goes the legend. Well, he may well have in fact been driven to do so out of sheer fury at having his name spelt incorrectly on the opening titles of episode one of The Tenth Planet, which spells his name with two T's, as if he were the intelligent talking car from Knight Rider, which he wasn't. But he probably could have built one. On episode two, Kit's name is spelt correctly. He presumably sent them a picture of what he was doing in his shed. But it doesn't last. As on episode three, Kit is still in order, but Peddler changes from ER to AR. And as if in sympathy, on this episode, script editor and co-writer Jerry Davis's name is added to his writing partners for the first time, and he gets gaffed as well, becoming Jerry Davies, not Davis. This stuff is catching. No wonder Michael Craze refers to the grotty planet Mandos in episode four, just to join in with the letter juggling. Still, the Cybermen, Peddler and Davies, sorry, Davis, had it better than Cyberman Derek Chafer. Derek's one and only screen credit on Doctor Who is as a Cyberman in The Invasion, and they spell it wrong. Two Fs instead of one, which poor Derek probably gave more than one or two Fs about himself. In addition, he's in dozens of stories between The Time Meddler and Warrior's Gate as an extra, sometimes playing a monster. But on the paperwork, the spellings of his name vary so much, it's like people keep dropping his surname and then carelessly sticking it back together with sellotape in any old order. He is Chaffer, Schaffer, Schaefer, and on some occasions, when they get the poor fellow's surname right, Chaffer, C-H-A-F-E-R for the record, then they spell Derek wrong. He's a single R, no C, as in Martinus, not a double R plus C, as in Sherwin. Poor old Derek isn't the only invading Cyberman to have made the journey to St Paul's Cathedral via the planet Typo. His fellow Cybermen, Ralph Carrigan and John Spradbury, also have their surnames spelt incorrectly in the invasion's closing titles. Someone in the graphics department was having an off day. Carrigan, who is also credited correctly in The Ark and the Macra Terra, becomes Carrigon, while Spradbury, whose only credit on the show is this, so it's a real killer, becomes Spradbury, like the northern town. Spradbury, who became a famous lighting designer in later life, presumably felt that literally becoming a name in lights, get it, was better than being an incorrect name in typography. 
But Doctor Who's credits haven't confined their mistakes to cyber mangling. As late in the day as Ghostlight, we find Catherine Schlesinger's name spelt incorrectly. She's Catherine with an A, as in Hepburn, not Catherine with an E, as in my now ex-wife, who even the Shropshire Star managed to get right, so the BBC has no excuse. So on the closing credits of parts one and two of Ghostlight, and also in the Radio Times for all three episodes, she say Catharin and they say Catherin, but by the end of part three, she's presumably threatened to call the whole thing off, and so some hurried surgery to the final part results in the mistake being rectified and presumably some flowers of apology being sent to Catherine. And if her luck is anything like mine, the grovelling apology will have spent Catherine right, but then rendered itself redundant by making a hash of Schlesinger. Film editor Gita Zadek gets similarly varied spellings on the same story. Gita is incorrectly spelled with one T on episode one, but gets the correct amount two on episode four of The Web Planet. I'm told that the graphics department was pedantic to the extent that they'd reproduce exactly what was on the requisition forms from production offices. Therefore, they could claim that no mistakes were their fault. So whilst the Zadek error may be forgivable, just put what was written there, Gov, they could say, I sniffed something a little bit more jobsworthy about another credit on the same story, the one for the BBC radiophonic work snop. Ah, said snop, Governor, who am I to argue? Still, both the Worksnop shop and Zadek fared better than Michael John Harris, the bow-tied, walrus-moustached, visual effects genius who worked on the show a lot and so had to take the various corruptions of his name in his stride, becoming, as he did, the most misspelled name in the history of Doctor Who credits. Presumably, that's why he spent so much of his time blowing things up. Like Michael John, Sylvester Latuzel one of the kids in The Mind Robber, and now a highly regarded actress of stage and screen, pays the price of having a slightly unusual name, which, in the credits, is mangled, losing a U before her name gets put on the roller caption. She say Latuzel, it says Latozel. Dalek operator Murphy Grumbar fits into two moniker-mangling subcategories, those headed Changing Names and Misspellings. In fact, he is Peter Murphy on his first appearance in The Daleks, whereas after that he is Murphy Grumbar. His full name was actually Peter Murphy Grumbar, so he's never credited as his proper name, Peter Grumbar. In Death to the Daleks, however, he is Murphy Grunbar, which probably made him very glun. Sorry, glum. Interestingly, not all actors actually like the spotlight, and some would prefer to remain relatively anonymous, despite the apparently very public nature of the job. I even know a couple who have eschewed a funeral and any post-death fuss and have just preferred to slip silently into the shadows. Me? Oh, I want a party where everyone is dead sad. If I can't get top billing anywhere else, I'll definitely take it at my funeral. But of course, even actors who want to remain anonymous have to be called something and they enter the subset of performers who go by names that aren't theirs, just because they prefer to separate their professional life from their personal one. Rupert at the West End is Jim in his local post office. Lala Ward of Equity Towers by night is, of course, Lady Sarah Ward from Viscount Bangers Gaff by day. Actually, she's referred to as Lala in real life, so she's not, strictly speaking, in the same category as, say, the tomb of the Cybermen's George Pastel, who was known off-screen and to his friends by his birth name, 
Nino. Like many actors with, in inverted commas, foreign-sounding names, Nino Pastelides became the relatively anglicised George Pastel, but only on the call sheet. In fact, quite a few Doctor Who regulars were not born with the names that we know them by. Ian Chesterton himself, William Russell, was born William Russell Enoch, but has always gone by the name Russ or Russell to his friends, and indeed reverted to that name professionally for a while, and all of his TV works in the 1980s find no jobs for William, but quite a few for Russell. We know her as Janet Fielding, but she was born Janet Mahoney, and John Wood was a respected Shakespearean actor of great note, which meant that John Woods, who is not a respected Shakespearean actor of note, had to become John Levine, a.k.a. Sergeant Benton. David Tennant is really David MacDonald, and Percy James Patrick Kentsmith is as much the kind of name you'd expect Sylvester McCoy to have were Sylvester McCoy not absolutely the ideal name for Sylvester McCoy. Some name changes are for delineation and demarcation, some for fun, and some because the Actors' Union Equity decrees that no two members should have the same or similar names, lest one impact upon the professional opportunities of another. The fifth doctor, Peter Davison, found himself being directed by the very cause of his own name change. For Davison was born Peter Moffat, E-double-T at the end, but Doctor Who director Peter Moffat, A-double-T at the end, had already put dibs on anything vaguely resembling that, otherwise the first caption of the closing credits of The Visitation would have read Doctor Who Peter Moffat, and the last would have read Directed by Peter Moffat, and goodness me, all hell might have broken loose. As we have discovered, thespians change their names for a number of different reasons. Some to be more exotic and noticeable, some for the opposite effect. The actor Norman Hartley from The Time Meddler and The Invasion, again, this is coming up a lot, was birthed as the much more exciting Norman Snazel, but an agent told him that that was too noticeable in what I'd call big mistake in week one at learning how to be an agent school. So, having had a name that would have stood out in the yellow pages, Norman just became another Hartley. And actually, the famous Yellow Pages Hartley, J.R. Hartley, was himself a Norman, as the actor who played him was called Norman Lumsden. But that will do as an aside, lest this monologue get more absurd than it already is. Making our Doctor Who Norman's name less snazelly, however, makes a sort of sense in context. A lot of actors with what might have been defined unusual names were encouraged to make them more down-to-earth, something Marion Morrison and Morris Micklewhite might tell you if you didn't already know them as John Wayne and Michael Caine, whereas later perhaps a more exciting name would make you stand out. There's no science to it really. Change your name, don't change your name. Me? I just sleep with the director. But what about in Destiny of the Daleks, the mysterious... Cassandra, playing a Mavellan. She adds to the mystery of her mononym by being credited on the wrong episode. She appears in episode three, but is credited on episode four. Is she trying to avoid the taxman or something? She is, though, for a long while, the only mononymously monikered Doctor Who thespian, and, and that gives her a certain je ne sais quassandra. I think the current wisdom is that, of course, Cassandra's full name is... Cassandra Trevora Trelunda. Anyway, thanks to Mummy on the Orient Express and its presence of the singer 
foxes, Cassandra is now no longer the only Una Monica on the show. Uh, talking of Cassandras, by the way, Francis White, playing the prophetess Cassandra in The Mythmakers, is not credited at all for her role in any Radio Times listing. Now, once might be an accident, but on three episodes that is surely deliberate, although the reasons for this have now been lost in the mists of time, even to the actress herself, who in a recent interview was flummoxed by this erasure. She was, it seems, credited on screen. She is not the only vanishing Cassandra, as Destiny's Cassandra disappears without trace after her single Who appearance. Maybe if she'd been cast again, she'd have brought her surname with her this time. Other actors do appear twice in the show, but that's not straightforward enough, and so they contrive to do so, sporting different appellations. So the Macra Terror's Carol Keyes comes back in Frontier in Space as not only a different character, but with a different stage name, and she's credited as Luann Peters. This was because Carol had a bit of a singing career, and when she decided to concentrate solely on acting, she separated both disciplines with a change of name, and the majority of her thesping was therefore as Luann. But if that wasn't confusing enough, Carol with a K slash Luann's real name was Carol with a C, Anne Hirsch. Slightly less complicated are Jenna Louise Coleman, who of course transformed to just Jenna Coleman, and Mitzi Webster from Colony in Space, who is the same Mitzi as Mitzi McKenzie in The Green Death, just in case you thought it was quite a coincidence that two long, dark-haired Mitzis appeared in two Doctor Who stories directed by the same person. The Daleks' master plan features one actor playing two different parts using two different names. In episode 7, the props man is played by Buddy Windrush, but this is the same person who in episode 11 plays Malpha as Brian Mosley. And we all know, of course, that his real name was Alf Roberts off of Coronation Street. Simon Day from The End of the World, the steward, is not the same Simon Day as the well-known comedy actor who appears in The Fast Show, which is presumably why he has become Simon Paisley Day when he returns to Doctor Who in Face the Raven. My guess is that the comedic Simon Day is not a member of the Actors' Union Equity and wouldn't change his name, and so our Mr Day had to sport a bit of Paisley in order to stand out from the crowd. The two members of Equity not being allowed to have the same name thing can throw up odd anomalies. For years, Bill Bailey, the comedian and actor who appears in The Doctor, The Widow and The Wardrobe, used to be advertised in the actor's directory spotlight as Mark Bailey, his equity name, to avoid clashing with the British equity-registered American actor Bill Bailey. It's all a bit confusing, but the stricter union laws back in the day meant far less of it, and people just had to bite the bullet and change their name if there was already someone with theirs registered with the union. Fair enough. But then that's easy for me to say, as it is not as if I run the risk of someone having the same name as me being in the same production. And if he was, the chances of our names both being spelt the same way twice in a row would be pretty minimal anyway. In fact, the one reason I would change my name would be to ensure it wasn't continually spelt or pronounced wrong. Like Derek Chafer, on the few occasions my surname is spelt correctly, I become Tony, which doubtless only adds to the whole unnecessarily furious sense of injustice that plagues me around this issue. But that said, 
I was once in a BBC radio play and I mentioned to the producer at the end of the day that my name is often pronounced incorrectly so that this, Toby Haydoke, is how it is done and please could you make sure it's like that on the credits. Oh yes, they said. And upon broadcast, my joyous moment of being third billed after Sir Derek Jacobi was banjaxed by the fact that Toby Haydoke had been replaced in the closing announcement by some joker by the name of Toby Haddocky. So I wrote a polite email pointing out that they had pronounced my name wrong and the producer replied, apologising and saying that yes, they would change it for any repeat broadcast but with that tone that only the BBC can manage which suggests that, oh yes Toby, you were absolutely right to point this out to us but actually I'm pissed off that you have even though it was strictly speaking our fault. So I actually ended up feeling like I was the one being out of order even though I tried to stop it happening in advance by being helpful. And, actually, the BBC has a pronunciations department with whom you can check if you are not sure. And whilst it would be churlish of me to suggest that pointing out that perfectly reasonable objection caused me any professional harm, I think it's just a massive coincidence. I've never worked for that producer since. Still, at least the BBC, as a result of that, no longer pronounces my name incorrectly. Reader, they still do. And quite often, I just don't complain anymore. And I think it's infectious. Even when my housemate Mark, when we were both out-of-work actors scraping and living in the late 90s, got a rare chance in the spotlight and got a speaking role on Hollyoaks, a break at last, his name got left off the credits and I felt somehow as though this was my fault, that my bad luck had rubbed off on him. I mean... It's paranoia to the point of narcissism, I grant you, or vice versa, or both, but hey, credit me with some self-awareness for realising this. And I mean, credit me, please, go on, in big letters and on a poster or something. It even happens now on things. Bloody typical, I say, when I feel I don't get the credit somewhere that I would like. But I'm trying to be better about it. My current partner, current, there speaks an optimist, is the type who says that this is the sort of thing that happens because I make it happen by thinking about it happening and that that plants a seed in the universe which causes its forces to act upon my own negativity. That seems a bit of a stretch to me. And I like a programme which features half-glimpsed figures of Tibetan mythology marauding around the London underground with web guns. It is at the very least scientifically unsound, I would say, and rather a contrived way for the universe to go about its business, reacting to the point of occasioning and manifesting into reality the innermost thoughts of paranoid thespians. Well, I was going to make him win the lottery, but instead I'll make that winning ticket he bought go through the washing machine because, after all, he is a negative sort of chap, so it's only appropriate, says no mystical force ever. Various head shrinkers I have been to, on the other hand, suggests that it doesn't happen to me any more than it happens to anyone else, and that I just notice it because it's me. And that seems very plausible. And then something of that kind happens to me again, and I feel like going pre-armed to my next session with a pile of Doctor Who magazines and a repeat season of radio plays to prove to them that they're actually wrong. But that would come across as a little bonkers. And so I keep it to myself and curse the universe for having it in for me. Which somehow is more likely than my partner's universe theory, even though that too relies on a sentient universe that has nothing better to do than to react to my thought processes. And actually, 
To be fair, I used to watch old movies in which only about ten actors were credited at the beginning, and that was it. I used to hate that. Even now, so many illustrious thesps remain uncredited on classic movies, even ones with long cast lists, and even if they have pretty decent parts. John Robinson, Professor Quatermass, and the Moonbase's main guest star, Patrick Barr, and Fury from the Deep's illustrious lead protagonist, Victor Madden, all go uncredited on The Longest Day. Megloss's Edward Underdown, the meddling Peter Butterworth, and a young Morris Micklewhite, all sorts, get no credit on The Day the Earth Caught Fire. A lot of these fellows weren't coughs and spits, but in fact playing hefty, supporting roles. Thank goodness that such practices had been expunged by the time my generation came along, to the extent that by the time I was scrutinising credits in the 1980s, even members of the crew also got noted, and in rather gigantic proportions. I remember a listing for Footsteps editor on an episode of Inspector Morse once, and chortling. But you know what? Footsteps editing probably takes a lot of skill, and it was nice for that person to get a nod, so stuff your chortle, Toby, and anyway... Don't knock footsteps editors, because they can probably creep up on you without you knowing it. But I didn't realise how good we had it. The credits in the 1980s seemed to be the best moment for them. But gradually, commercialism has crept in, and they've had to be shrunk, and then speeded up, and then shrunk and speeded up. Oh, the humanity. Nowadays, it doesn't matter whether you're credited or not. Your name flashes up so quickly, the only people who can read it are the Roadrunner and the Rustin Warrior robot. And it's a practice that's coming back, people being missing. Apart from Leslie Grantham on Resurrection of the Daleks, and that's as a result of the four-parter being turned into a two-parter late in the day, which means he gets dropped off the final episode one, I don't think there's anyone from 80s Who missing from the credits. And yet, its 21st century iteration has many absentees. First there's Naveen Chowdhury in World War Three. So he doesn't say anything, he's largely dead in it, but that doesn't make a difference, he's not an extra. And Jenna Russell in The Parting of the Ways, both featured characters who aren't credited. Neither Samuel Anderson as Danny Pink nor James Kermack as one of the speaking guards get a nod in Time Heist. And there's a poor guy from Flatline, a named character called Stan. Cheer up, love, might never happen, he says, and sorry, love, didn't mean nothing by it. And he is the first of the community service guys to get eaten by the graffiti. Well, no credit on screen, nor is he on IMDB, which at least the others I mention are. Now, could it be that he's an example of that increasingly utilised and, in my view, egregious, cost-saving measure of getting an extra to do a couple of lines and then dubbing them over in ADR? This usually happens, though, with an over-the-shoulder police constable or an out-of-shot bank teller. But Stan, he's in clear vision when he speaks. It's a proper part and he deserves a credit. And as I was preparing for this podcast, I was delighted to see that Bikramjit Gurm is now on IMDb's cast list for Demons of the Punjab. So now I know who played the holy man, another decent featured part for which the actor gets no recognition on the episode's credits. Still, loads of people with decent speaking parts in the X-Files TV series, for example, and the original Star Wars films go uncredited, so it's not a who-only, really old stuff or really modern stuff phenomenon. Star Wars is particularly terrible, with who is and isn't credited seemingly a random occurrence. And you know what? You'd have thought they could have corrected the credits first before messing with who shot who in the cantina. 
So a fair few Who faces crop up in Star Wars, from the gunfighter's Shane Rimmer to Tomb of the Cybermen's George Rubicek via Trial of a Time Lord's Malcolm Tierney, without you knowing it, even if you do stay to read the cast list at the end. I'm told this is because the producer in charge didn't have a full list to hand when putting them together, but that's a pretty poor excuse. It shouldn't have happened then, and it certainly shouldn't be happening now. But just so that this podcast doesn't come with a pair of rose-tinted spectacles, whilst we are here, let's confront some of those absences from Doctor Who in the past. Frontier in Space, Episode 2, accidentally uses the credits for Episode 1, and so some actors from the first instalment, Louis Mahoney and Roy Patterson, get a credit on the episode they aren't in, when two actors who feature quite prominently, Lawrence Davidson and Timothy Craven, do not. Craven would at least be in Doctor Who again, but it's Davidson's sole outing, a rather enjoyably terse turn as the draconian First Minister, and so his only contribution to Doctor Who goes unrecorded. Others miss out for different reasons. Some actors who pop back in for cliffhanger reprises aren't credited if they feature in no new footage for an episode. Or, in the case of, say, William Marlowe in The Mind of Evil, only a few seconds worth without lines. And that seems fair. It's not like they've had to come back in, especially to do that bit. And in fact, in the days when they'd have had to have done that, in the 1960s, when the show was recorded on a weekly basis, actors who died in cliffhangers had two choices. They either had to return to do it again the following week, on full pay and with a credit, like Bernard Holly in Tomb of the Cybermen and Nick Zaran in The Space Pirates, to reenact their death and then be a body, or their death wasn't restaged, but it was played in via a film insert from last week, with dead body duties being done by someone else who would therefore need no credit, such as, for example, Johnson Bailey as Balan in The Dominators. That's not him lying on the floor in episode five. And when I say, of course, actors had a choice, actors never had any choice. They'd just do as they were asked, and the decision was a purely budgetary or practical one. In the Dalek invasion of Earth, Robert Aldous was cast at the last minute as an insurgent, the bloke who ushers Barbara from the side of the Thames because her move from studio to location needed a bridging scene between her being at the water's edge and running off with the rebels. By the time Aldous was booked, the captions for the credits had already been made, so his speaking contribution was not listed on screen but they did manage to sneak his name into the Radio Times, so at least someone made an effort where it was possible to do so. In fact, the same thing happened to Aldous with his appearance in the Dad's Army episode Manhunt, in which he also fails to get a credit, so persistent bad luck doesn't just happen to me. When I visited him in his retirement home some time ago, I brought this up with Robert Aldous, and he was remarkably sanguine about it, so there's hope. If I hang on for another 50 years, I might just learn to get over myself. Simon Cain isn't credited as the speaking and death-scened Private Upton in Part 7 of Doctor Who and the Silurians, but that's because he's also a Silurian and credited on the episode for playing one of those. I know which I'd prefer. Now, Cain was clearly around playing a Silurian and got the more visible part as a bonus to his existing engagement from the previous few weeks, but it seems odd that he's not credited as his name-checked character. 
Max Faulkner as the second guard captain and George Cormack, who plays Canpo, are both uncredited for, respectively, parts four and five of Planet of the Spiders because they weren't actually supposed to be in those episodes and only ended up being so when material needed to be jiggled in the edit and brought forward a bit. Gabriel Wolfe can be heard as Sutek in part two of Pyramids of Mars but gets no acknowledgement. But again, that's because the scene was originally planned for part three. Roy Boyd as Driscoll, albeit in the reprise only, and Francis Pidgeon as Miss Jackson don't get credited at the end of The Hand of Fear, part three. And Pidgeon was married to the director. If your own husband can't guarantee that you get your dues, then who can? If that situation was anything like some that arise in Haydoke Towers, that would never have been forgotten, brought up at the back of any petty dispute or domestic grievance. And you missed my credit off the end of episode three of The Hand of Fear. And anyway, I have a headache. But for every loser, there must be a winner. And there are some who are credited on episodes of Doctor Who, even though their performances are gone. Dave Carter as Grierson in episode one of The Android Invasion, Bill McGurk as the policeman in Terror of the Autons, episode three, and Dean Hollingsworth as the bus conductor in episode three of The Greatest Show in the Galaxy are all credited despite the fact that their scenes were edited from the production due to overrunning instalments. That said, is that really a victory? How would I feel watching an episode of something I used to be in, with only my name in the credits left as a reminder of my binned work? Oh, I'd have been furious, and I'd have taken it personally. Of course I would. Still, not as bad as my friend, who turned up to the premiere of a major movie he was in, with a date. He played the film's main character, but only seen as his younger self in flashback and in dream sequences. And when my friend triumphantly introduced his date to the movie's director, he was rather nonplussed to see the colour drain from the director's cheeks. Word had not got through. The film was overrunning, and so the flashback and dream scenes were cut. And therefore, my friend's entire part was gone. But they forgot to tell him. They didn't, however, forget to invite him to the premiere. Nicely played, film people. Suffice to say, it wasn't the best start to the date, nor the highlight of my friend's career. So it doesn't just happen to me. But don't worry, he's fine. He's always working. Uh, he's not with the girl, though. Presumably she ran off with someone who impressed her by playing the title role in Waiting for Godot or something. But even as I've composed this, Remembering times when I felt slighted, wondering who that uncredited actor was and being angry on their behalf, putting myself through the pain of getting vexed at the absences every year and the BAFTA in memoriams. Well, that's me taking the magic that I see in those names and their patterns and instead of revelling in what I get out of them, bespoken, bonkers though it may be, oh, I've tied my stomach in knots worrying about what other people see or don't. And that way, dear listener, Madness lies. That's the way to transform your love and devotion into a problem, like a boyfriend who is too clingy, or starts reading your emails, or locking you in the cellar. Whether he then puts your name on the door or not is immaterial. And, look, it doesn't really matter. I'm sorry, young Toby, but it doesn't. I've met many actors who spent their lives getting top billing and who are still miserable and unfulfilled. 
And if they do get listed on the BAFTA in memoriam, well, they'll still be just as dead as the people who don't and none of them will be any the wiser. And I have to admit, most people do stand up as soon as the film ends at the cinema. When one rented videos, there was always a jump or scratch where the thing had frequently been stopped. Yep, just as the credits started to roll. Because most people don't watch credits if given the choice, whether I like to believe that they do or not. Perhaps I give people more credit than they deserve. And that's where I have to get to. Now, I still think credit should be readable and that programmes are better for having decent cast lists rendered properly and that programmes finish better if they're not immediately invaded by a trailer for something else. I actually think there's a direct correlation between the brevity and diminution of credits and the fall of Western civilization as we know it. But I mustn't let it ruin my day. I mustn't project what probably boils down to dad issues on what is essentially a menu. I mustn't seek approval by thinking everything will just be alright so long as other people see a thing which means I look important or like I'm part of something or, or I have achieved something. It's no good seeing your name in lights if you read everything from the vantage point of the doldrums. And you know what? I was fortunate enough to be in a position to suggest that when Frontier in Space was released on Blu-ray that they include the proper credits for episode 2 as an option. So then at least, after all these years, Lawrence Davidson and Timothy Craven could be credited, redressing that injustice that no one had bothered to correct from 1972. I mean, we couldn't possibly replace the as-broadcast credits because, well, that's a whole other podcast, but, you know, as-broadcast, although that said, they did with Catherine Sessinger on Ghostlight, so actually, yep. Anyway, we didn't. Frontier went out on the Blu-ray as-broadcast, but... We could offer the correct version as an alternative, and we did, and people have watched both, and guess what? Almost all of the feedback was, um, what happened there? What, what was different? Why did you do the same titles twice? Why was that done? So I fought and died on a hill that nobody, not even fans devoted enough to buy a Blu-ray box set and watch every single extra, knew was there. But look, I'm not mad. Billing is a very important bargaining chip, particularly in the US. In fact, sometimes actors deem it better to receive no credit rather than an unsatisfactory one. The majestic Frank Langella in Deep Space Nine say apparently he was doing it for his kids, not for exposure. That fine actor Harris Yulin in 24, uh, he apparently did that because the programme's then in-house style had two guest actors credited per slide and he only wanted a single slide all to himself. For Yulin's agent, it was better not to appear at all than to appear with someone else. So it's a complex business, but those complexities reflect how much of an impact this sort of thing has and why it's important. As much as anything about looking into the minutiae of popular entertainment in forensic detail is important, which is of course not very, but don't say that or I'll shoot myself. Now, a lot of American actors get billed at the front of programmes because of the egregious practice of closing credits over there always going at the speed of light. These days, however, UK programmes have the worst of both worlds. The closing credits zoom by too quickly, but the guest actors don't get front of programme billing, which has usually been the case in the US. The not-credited-on-purpose thing, however, has only really happened on Doctor Who once, in the case of 
Bill Nye's turn in Vincent and the Doctor. His cameo appearance, unlikely to generate top billing, it seemed more illustrious to sort of nonchalantly bat any idea of a credit away, and yes, that comes across as rather classy. Yeah, I'll do an important episode of this much-loved show, and yes, I am a film star and all that, but hey, let's, let's not make a fuss. Oh, look, Tony Curran's playing Van Gogh. He's good, isn't he? Orchestrated humility. We actors are good at that, but, oh, you know, don't mention it. But the problem these days is also that IMDb fails to differentiate between actors playing uncredited roles, like some of those I've mentioned above, and walk-ons and extras, who spend all their time not walking on and being extras, adding themselves to IMDb cast lists for roles such as Passerby and Man in 70s Flashback, which makes, say, David Warner's contribution to Straw Dogs the same as that of a bloke who played background pub man. Warner, incidentally, was uncredited on Straw Dogs because he'd injured himself and was uninsurable on the film, and this led to a lack of credit. But everybody would have known who David Warner was, so sometimes having no credit is a very alpha thing. You don't need to read David Warner's name to know that he is in Straw Dogs. Funnily enough, I foolishly tried this myself once. Yes, me. Mr. Oh, I get sad if I'm overlooked and it's all my dad's fault. I wasn't going to mention this because it's stupid and the stupidity is mine, but hey, full disclosure, eh? And, after all, it would be hypocritical of me not to put my name to something, wouldn't it? Some time ago I was fresh from changing agents when I was offered a small part in a production by a director I like. My previous roles for this bunch had been quite hefty, featured, named, guest parts, but these were not that. They'd be fun though and it was a chance to work on something rather jolly with nice people and I was free. I should have just said yes and been grateful to be thought of. But my new agent queried the size of the part. She was trying to big me up, I think, because it was early days between us, because it wasn't long before I was being put up for some right old guff buyer, to be honest. But anyway, the long and the short of it was, it felt so important that this might be seen as a demotion. By whom, Toby? Who is watching? No one. So I said rather grandly, well, I, I will do it, but I, I must remain uncredited as though this was some piece of brinkmanship in terms of who goes where and in what size font on the poster of a major movie. This was Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfus in Jaws. Scheider looks like his first build, if you read from left to right, but Shaw is in the middle, but his first name is a line higher. Steve McQueen and Paul Newman have the same kind of wrangle in the towering inferno. Which is best, height or left first, right second? It's a balancing act of the kind that goes on even to this day. Paul Giamatti and Damien Lewis in Billions, Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon in The Morning Show. No such joy in audio, though. So I went for the alpha option. I pulled a Yulin, a Judson Scott in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. He plays Khan's sidekick, Joachim. A decent role, but again, some vanity wrangling meant he ended up not on the credits. And he was a recognisable sort of face at the time. Now, though, it just looks like someone forgot to put an actor we've kind of forgotten ourselves on the menu. We don't think, wow, all hail Judson Scott. We think, oh, that's odd. And then we hear why and we go, really, Judson? Really? If, and this is crucial, we even notice at all. For me, though, I thought big. Or did I? I maybe even, I think, thought I was being kind of humble. I don't know. I thought at best it might make for an interesting curio, and it would show my new agent that I meant business, and it would make my co-workers quite impressed. And do you know what? No one who 
experienced that production has even noticed. No one cares. And to be honest, now I feel a bit embarrassed about the whole thing. If I hadn't mentioned it, no one would have known. But I think it's an important reminder about how things that seem so important at the time often, frankly, aren't. About worrying what other people think when, actually, they aren't thinking at all. The only people who probably noticed were the people who had to go to the trouble of not putting my name in the credits, and they just probably thought I was being a dick, and not, I have to admit now, without some justification. I can imagine the conversation at the production office. He what? He doesn't want to be credited. Toby Haydock? Well, actually, they probably said Toby Hadioki. <laughs> Who does he think he is? What a load of horseshit. And then the horseshit pipes up. Oi, don't like the billing. And they go, you know what? Fair enough. So yeah, it is nice to get a credit. But like many nice things, getting hung up on it turns the nice thing into a nasty thing. And that is no good to anybody. Flowers are nice in your dressing room until you start to expect them because then you start demanding them and then you get disappointed if they're not there and then you piss everybody else off by only starting work if there are flowers and then a particular type of flowers and then more flowers than that sod over the corridor whose name is on the left while mine is up higher and nobody is happy and everyone's hoping they look more important than everyone else and that's how monsters are made and how nice things turn nasty. And actually, it doesn't matter how much credit you get from other people. Because, whispers, it won't make you happy. It's taken me a long time, but I think I'm getting to grips with the idea that the road to happiness doesn't lie in getting the credit you hope for from other people. It's being happy enough within yourself not to seek the validation of others. Because, after all, who saves the universe every week and is a national institution, but whose name has never appeared on the credits of our beloved programme, and yet they are unquestionably very important to it. Oh yeah, that's right. The Doctor. Who? Thank you for listening to Indefinable Magic, which was written and performed by... Ooh, wouldn't you like to know? See, I don't need your validation. I don't need a name check. I'm cool with that. The music was by Mr. X. Uh, actually, it's Dominic Glynn, and I'm not going to miss out on crediting him because I really like his music and he's been very kind to provide it. So I'm not missing his name off just to prove some silly point. That'd be rude. Oh. Oh, so maybe it is important. Thanks go to Peter Crocker and to Frank Shales. Indefinable Magic is produced by Theo Badeki and directed by Abe Hoktodi. Right, I'd better list some patrons next then, because that is most definitely a heartfelt way of expressing my thanks. Yes, it's a courtesy. It's nice to be acknowledged, and there's nothing wrong with that. So, these podcasts would be impossible without the support of patrons, who include... And you know what? I'm going to read these not in order of appearance or importance or tier or whatever. For this one, 
I'm going to list the longest serving patrons, those who've been subscribing since the beginning, as I've not done that before, and I think it is time. So thanks to the veterans who are Dave Spencer, Chris, you know you are, but you've decided to go uncredited. See, even patrons do it. Russell Parker, Paul Carrington, Peter Crocker, Paul Shields, Ian Key, Andy Kitching, Rick Byatt, John Deere, Alistair Wallace, Nick Temple, another anonymous Christopher, Tim Dickinson, James Gould, Sidney Trout, Joe Llewellyn, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Nathan Moore, anonymous Michael, Pip Maidley, another anonymous Chris. What is it about Chris's that want to remain hidden? Peter Adamson, Peter Blackett, Christopher Joyce, Stephen Schapansky, Hugh Buchtman, Sam Hollingsworth, Melvin Pena, Keith Say, Paul Taylor Greaves, Charles Gears, Susan Christian, Simon Hodges, Judith Jackson, Paul Dykes, Dave Curran, Stuart Mitchell, Steve Churchill, Ken Patterson, Paul Cook, Michael Williams, Paul Guest, Adam Westwood, Luke Atkins, Chris Dunford Kelk, Will Brooks, Len Stewart, Nick Mellish, Adam Stone, Richard Smith, Robin Bland, and that's a pseudonym. I've got pseudonyms, I've got uncredited people. Oh, it's got the whole lot of magic to it. But of course, everyone is massively appreciated. And some of you only joined a day after these guys. So, oh, so you've been missed out. So you're probably taking it really personally now. I'm sorry. God, this crediting business is difficult. Uh, if you would like to join that list of names or even occasionally be left off it or misspelt sometimes, uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Toby where you can get advanced releases, bonus material. You get a credit on selected episodes of the podcasts and YouTube videos and all sorts of other business. It's fairly egalitarian. Most things are available on the lowest tier of £3 per month, but you get 10% off that and any of the other tiers. You can pay what you like, really, uh, of 10% if you sign up for a year. Uh, if you don't want to be beholden to a monthly contribution, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock, where you can throw some pennies into my hat whenever you like. And do you know what? I understand that times are tough and that these aren't necessarily things you want to be paying for. But what costs you absolutely nothing is to go to uh, the iTunes uh, uh, or Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts from do you notice i said the itunes there like a really old person uh you can go to the itunes and give it some of your cyber things um you can go to the itunes and give this a five star review five stars really help to separate us from the crowd get us a little bit more prominent and perhaps make people aware of these who aren't uh and a couple of lines of review really help as well so five stars and a couple of lines of review would be a really really helpful thing to help uh, tickle me algorithms and make them feel very special so any of those things really contribute to helping me shut myself in a cupboard and talk rubbish at you <laughs> about doctor who and sometimes about something vaguely related to doctor who but i am mostly just grateful to you for listening so thanks very much uh, I'm a comedian too, not that you necessarily know it from some of the content. Uh, I do stand-up at Excess Monarchy Comedy Club every Tuesday in Manchester at 8pm. We have an online version at twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey on the first Sunday of every month at 8pm. That's free, but we do ask for contributions. So uh, check those out. At Excess Malarkey is the Twitter handle, and I have a Twitter handle too, at Toby Haydock. And these podcasts are at at Haydock Podcasts. <laughs> Actually, I should point out for the record that I did the closing credits for the Evil of the Daleks uh, 
DVD animation to make sure that they matched the closing credits of the televised version because I said, look, mistakes have been made on this in the past and you need somebody that really cares about these things to do it. So I did them and <laughs> I made loads of mistakes. I read them and reread them, got the right font, got the right size. And you know what? You check and you check and you check and you check. And then a fresh eye looks at them and goes, are you sure Molly Dawson was spelt differently on episode five to episode three? They go, no, it's spelt this. Oh, I've spelt it differently. I spelt it with a Y on some and an IE on others. And you know what? I'd read that a million times. So uh, perhaps it's not as easy as it looks. And in fact, when I was reading this back, I did the bit about uh, the morning show and I said, uh, Jennifer Aniston and Reese Shearsmith. Something in my brain went, are you sure it's Reese Shearsmith? Reader. It's not Rishi Smith. So uh, uh, fortunately, uh, I, I, somewhere in the recesses of my brain, uh, I, uh, I gave Miss Witherspoon the credit that she deserves, but only just. And you're never going to believe this. <laughs> the most apposite coda of all. I've actually just edited, finished and saved this. And... One of the patrons you heard credited there, I went, I'm sure that's not. Because I went back to, you know, the, the the web page and saw the order that people joined in. And one of the people I credited there, I went, I'm sure that's not his Christian name. So I re-recorded it to use the Christian name I've credited this patron by since they joined at the very beginning. And they've just messaged me about something else completely, just to say something nice about the podcasts. And I went, oh, ha- hang on. That Christian name is the correct Christian name. So therefore, the Christian name I've been crediting that patron with, which is nothing to do with their name at all, has been incorrect since they joined. So this is somebody I'm grateful to. This is somebody I'm acknowledging. This is me who cares about credits and takes care and and who is slighted because people miss me out and forget about me. But I would never do the same to somebody else because I care, because I'm a good person and because the universe is only against me. Uh, And I've consistently got this person's Christian name completely wrong ever since the very beginning and wouldn't have known that had they not just messaged me as I stay up to edit this about something completely different. So so maybe that is the universe pointing things out on their behalf. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, sorry to that person. Uh, I haven't checked with them if it's okay to flag any of this up, so I will... They will remain uncredited on on this particular piece of self-abasement. But, oh dear.